We can celebrate, Lord, the Lord's Supper and that it is to us a glorious table feast. Lord, that reminds us of the greatest life-sustaining, grace-imparting, joy-producing sacrament, ordinance of the church where we reflect on the body and the blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so blessed that you have given us, Lord, the grace that we need, uh, the grace that strengthens the heart. And we know that that grace is found exclusively in your Son, Jesus. Please, Lord, strengthen us today by that same grace. Pray today you would lift up our heads, you would encourage our heart, that you would strengthen the weary and the downtrodden, Lord, that you would lift us up, Lord, exalt us as we humble ourselves under your hand. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time together. We pray that you would work powerfully and prophetically through your word, that you would increase our joy and our devotion to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today uh, we come to this uh, section of Scripture that really deals with, again, the concept of endurance. And really, in the context here, um, the author is addressing the church and seeking to encourage them because in the New Covenant, not only have have they been berated by those who are in the Old Covenant so that Really, what's going on in a large portion of the book of Hebrews is persecution. Uh, Not only that, but they are also now being uh, influenced by false teaching. And so in order to bring correction to that, the author of Hebrews is going to reiterate something here about the new covenant, and uh, he's going to go from there to talk about uh, the ultimate goal of the new covenant. And so really, what we're looking at now are instructions. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, the author began to give them practical instructions on how to live out the new covenant. And I guess today what we can entitle this is uh, staying faithful to the new covenant, because that's what he's Calling, to, calling them to do, and that's what he's trying to produce in them. Faithfulness to the realities that are found in the new covenant, and we know that because of several things. Number one, we know that because of the enduring character of Christ. Of course, I get that from verse 8 that speaks about the constancy of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 again with me. What a glorious, glorious a statement here about Jesus. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I guess one of the the questions we may have is, why now? Why bring in the constancy issue of Christ now? Why declare in the midst of this context that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? I think one of the reasons why is because he just called them to remember the leaders who had led them in the past. And so he's trying to reiterate that the way that they got in is the way that they're going to stay in, and the way that they stay in is the way that's going to bring them everlastingly to their home. And all of that is fueled, and all of that stems from Jesus Christ. In other words, it is a call to be fixed upon Him. It is a call to remain faithful to the Lord and to build your life on Jesus Christ. That is what is being said here. 
Now, to remind us of this, I want to use a parable of what Jesus himself said. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is a glorious, small, short parable, but it has intense ramifications. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus begins in verse 24 to speak about the value of building your life on him, on his teachings, on his person, on his work. And this is what he says. He says in verse 24, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, this is the person you want to be. You want to be the person that hears the word of Christ, that acts on the word of Christ, and that wisely lives their lives on Christ. That's who you want to be. Here's why. Verse 25. Because the rains will fall, the floods will come, the winds will blow, and they will slam against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. What's he saying there? What he's saying there is that all of us who follow him in the analogy or the metaphor, all of us were like a house, and depending on the foundation of that house, that will determine whether or not our life in Christ, our Christian life, will stand or fall. If you decide to build your life on the teaching of Jesus, on the constant faithfulness of the gospel, on the truth of the gospel, if you build, in other words, in the shortest way possible, if you build your life on the unchanging rock of Jesus Christ, you will withstand the greatest trials of life. And even more than that, eschatologically speaking, you will withstand on the last day. You will withstand trials in this life? Absolutely. You can go through anything as a Christian in this life as long as you have the hope of the nations, which is Jesus. As long as you have Jesus Christ as your mediator between God and man, as long as He is your Lord, your Savior, as long as you belong to Him and you are united to Him, you can go through anything in this life. Matter of fact, Jesus assured us, right, in John chapter 16, verse 33, that we will go through a lot of things in this life, and they will be tribulation. Well, that's where the Hebrews people are at. They are experiencing tribulation. Coming into the new covenant for these Hebrew uh, Christians was not easy. Uh, it entailed being ostracized by the community. It entailed being persecuted for Christ. And we've looked at the passage over and over in, in Hebrews chapter 10, where it even entailed imprisonment, seizure of property. So in other words, they're undergoing persecution. It is not easy to go into the new covenant in this way. And so now the author is saying, stay there. Don't move from your new covenant convictions. Build your life on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, Matthew 7, if you don't, everyone who hears the words and does not act on his words will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. In other words, when the greatest judgment storm comes, the judgment of God's wrath, if you are not found situated on the rock that is Jesus Christ and His new covenant work, you will not withstand the wrath of God. Jesus is unchanging. 
And even more than this, if we just think about the context of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the unchanging one. In other words, Jesus is the same yesterday in time past. Jesus is the same today in present time. And Jesus will be the same forever for all future time. In other words, in every epoch, in every age, in every stage of redemptive history, Jesus Christ has been and will be the same. That is why, quite contrary to evangelical liberalism, we don't add to the gospel. We don't try to change the gospel. We don't try to improve the gospel. We don't try to enhance it or reimagine it for something other than what it is. No, 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 no. Jesus, because He does not change, He is constant. Because He does not change, we can always say He is the way. Because He does not change, we can always say He is the truth. He is the life. And He will always and forever remain the way to the Father. The way to the Father. Matter of fact, in the Bible, the way, the way, the way. All of that theology goes right back to what Hebrews has been teaching us from the very beginning. That there is a way in, and that the only way in is through Christ. But if He changes, that way changes. But it doesn't. I mean, just look back at chapter 10, beginning of verse 19. He is the way. He is the only way. He is the way that He he remains the way forever. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice He remains a high priest, a constant high priest for us. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies being washed with pure water. In other words, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, He cleanses us. He makes us ritually acceptable before God. Uh, That's going to come into focus even more as we go on with the exposition here. Another reason why we need to maintain the constant nature of Christ is because we never can be moved away from that by someone else. What I mean by that is if you look at verse 9, because now the, 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 the author takes us in a different direction. Notice the warning now right? We go from the constant unchanging character of Christ to now a threat or a warning of something that can threaten that constancy, that that hope, that constant staying upon Christ. He says, do not be carried away by varied varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Very, very interesting. Let's keep reading. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. Now, let me just, let me just prepare you for this. Uh, this is a really tricky section of Scripture. There are numerous views on how to interpret. This is a very, very exegetically uh, complex passage of Scripture. And just on first reading, you're like, what? Entering who? What? Burned outside? Where? <laughs> and that's supposed to be, you know, clear as crystal. 
I'm going to try to clarify it for us if we don't garble it up. But notice first what he's saying is that this community, like every other church, every other, pretty much every other letter of the New Testament encounters some sort of, 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 of a threat, some sort of danger from some sort of teaching or some sort of group of teachers or false teaching. It's everywhere, all over the New Testament. We can never escape the constant battle of heresy. And so should we expect it to be any different today? I don't think we can, because this is the nature of living in this present evil age. But the warning concerns false teachers who are seeking, apparently, seeking to undermine the all-sufficiency of the grace of God. Now, what was this, uh, what was this emphasis on food about? He says, remember, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Well, what are those foods? Well, the book of Hebrews, in keeping with the context, remember we're talking new covenant, old covenant. Well, part of the old covenant is that you belong to the dietary laws of the old covenant that are found in Leviticus and in other places that you are supposed to follow in order to be in right standing with God in covenant. And so really, ultimately, this is some sort of incipient legalistic teaching that is seeping its way into the church and what is the what what is the greatest uh, what is the greatest threat to grace legalism right as you go from the grace of god either to legalism or to license one or the other you either, if you, the grace of god is neither a license for sin or a standard for legalism it is the grace of god god's grace liberates and uh, produces obedience by its efficacy. But still, this church was facing what he calls varied and strange teachings. The reason why they were strange, brothers and sisters, is because these were not just Jews attacking the Christian church and telling them to come back to Judaism without Christ. It was probably some form of, 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 of a combination of a, of a syncretism of both trying to bring Christ and Old Testament dietary principles together. Remarkably, I've met Christians who've tried to do this. I've met Christians who try, from a Christian perspective, to go back under some sort of Old Covenant, either dietary principles or observance of the Jewish calendar, whether it's the celebration of the feasts or whether it's adherence to the Sabbath or to the, 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 the special holy days of Israel or whatever it is, because they think that that somehow is more spiritual. They think by celebrating the, the Passover or they think by uh, celebrating the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Booths or reenacting that in the church, that that is somehow in keeping with the New Covenant. It is not. In other words, any time you go to the Old Covenant to try to bring in the Old Covenant uh, 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 ways of life, the institutions, the laws, the principles, and to bring them back into the New Covenant, you are going astray. Turn with me to Galatians. The book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes this so clear, and he does so in a number of passages, but Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul warns us against being carried away into some sort of retrograde old covenant application of the law to new covenant believers. He says in verse 8, Galatians 4, 8, he says, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, but now that you have come to know God... 
or rather to be known by God, how is it that you are turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? What is that? Let me summarize it for you and explain what that really means. Basically, when he means the elemental things or the elemental principles or something like that, what he's talking about is man-made religion, man-made forms of spirituality that do not profit anything. He says, that's why he calls them worthless, right? He says, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. What's he talking about? Look at verse 10. This is the influence of Jewish Judaizers on a gospel-liberated uh, church. And he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. In other words, and there's no doubt, read any commentary, any, any scholar on Galatians, they'll tell you that what this is probably talking about very, very neatly is the Jewish calendar that comprised of years and months and weeks and days. Another place, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, very explicitly, the Apostle Paul tells us to be on guard because this is a philosophy we do not want to follow. Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance of that belongs to Christ. So in other words, don't let anyone drag you back to celebrating things like uh, 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 new moons and festivals. These were all part of the Jewish uh, religious calendar and religious ceremonies. Notice his emphasis on food. You see that? What did Jesus say about food? Jesus said, it is not what goes into a man's body that defiles him, but what comes out. This was the error of the Pharisees. This was the error of the Jewish elites. They were so legalistic that they, they were so concerned with every little thing that you put in your mouth, they didn't even care what came out of your mouth. Out of your mouth could have preceded cursings, but as long as you eat the right kind of food, you're okay. That is not the new covenant. New covenant, the heart is what's changed. In the new covenant, according to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, Christ brings in what Hebrews calls the time of reformation. He was the real reformer. He, he brings in a, a reformation, meaning there's a change to the order. The old covenant is set aside. The new covenant comes and outshines the old covenant so that we dare not return to old covenant law. Uh, matter of fact, he also tells us that in regards to foods, turn to Hebrews 9, for example. In regard to food, this is all on an external, temporal, typological level. We, we, we don't need to ever be uh, in bondage to regulations that tell us what we can and cannot eat. Uh, one of the questions you always get if you're doing evangelism and witnessing to skeptics or atheists or agnostics, and they go to the Old Testament, they'll, they'll, they'll pull a passage out of Leviticus, and they'll ask you, do you eat shrimp? I say, yeah, wrapped in bacon. <laughs> no shame, right? I mean, God told Peter, kill and eat. I mean, what part of that don't people understand? Um <laughs> 
I don't try to be crude. Well, I don't know, sometimes. It depends how gracious I am that day. But there's no reason for us to put ourselves back under a yoke of bondage. Uh, again, if you look at Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 8, it says, The Holy Spirit is signifying by this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. As long as that old tabernacle temple was still erected and standing, what that was a symbol of is that the way to the real tabernacle, the real temple, had not been yet disclosed. He says, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relay only to food and drink and various washings and regulations of the body imposed until a time of reformation. Time of reformation is God breaking into redemptive history and changing the whole order of the way that he chose to govern his people. That's what the new covenant is really all about. Let's go back to the text of Hebrews 13, but notice some really interesting things that are being said here. He says here that we, we need to be strengthened by grace. He says it is, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And then he says, he says because those uh, he says, not by food through which those who were occupied, so occupied, were not benefited. You see that? That's just telling us legalism does not spiritually benefit you. And he says this in verse 10, we have an altar. This is almost like a contrast. This is saying, but we have an altar, watch this now, from which, and then he changes the, he changes the identity from we to those very slight change in the exegesis, but I think it's important. We have an altar, but those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And so there's a big debate on what does that mean? Is this the Apostle Paul just simply pointing out that the Jewish people have an Old Testament tabernacle and that they, they didn't have any right to eat of it? Well, maybe, but I think what's going on here is when he says we have an altar... I think what he's saying is that in the New Covenant, the New Covenant believer also has an altar, and it's different. Our altar is different. The way that Tom Schreiner defines it is that that altar has to do with the saving dimensions of the cross. I think that's right. Something like that is right. In other words, it's the true offering. It's the true place of sacrifice. Uh, It has to do, and it corresponds to the real tabernacle. Uh, And then it says, and those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. I want to suggest to you that that tabernacle in verse 10b, part b, is talking about the old covenant tabernacle. Now, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, because we have seen this sort of, um, sort of dualism before. In other words, there's a there's the, there's the, real, the real altar. There's a, there's a real tabernacle as opposed to the typological one to the earthly one. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 and then we'll go to chapter 9. It says, now the main point that has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. You see that? So there is a, there is a real tabernacle, a true tabernacle. So remember, we've talked about this so many times, and I wish I could put a chart up on the screen to show you, but what happens is that the earthly tabernacle that we see in the Old Testament, when Moses tells the children of Israel to build God a sanctuary, right? Exodus chapter 25 and, another, and then following from there. He gives detailed instructions on how to build the earthly sanctuary, the earthly tabernacle. And then even Hebrews points out that he goes on to say, Moses, be careful that you build it exactly according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. So that pattern corresponds to the heavenly tabernacle. Now, as we go from the earthly tabernacle to the time of Christ in the New Testament, then we find the fulfillment of that earthly tabernacle. What that earthly tabernacle was pointing us to, ultimately, brothers and sisters, was the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, was the atonement that is in Christ Jesus. He brings us to the true holy place. And when Jesus crumbs, when Jesus comes, when he makes atonement, when he makes propitiation, guess what this corresponds to? The heavenly original. And so when Jesus comes, his work corresponds to what, what goes on in heaven. In other words, what God has purposed, what God has planned. And so we're not surprised to find passages like turn to Hebrews chapter 9 just to show you another correspondence. I know that the argument here is very tight and it's, it's very complex, but it's worth it because this is our all. This is, this is the heart of and soul of the gospel that Paul, that uh, Paul, that you know my bias of the book of Hebrews now, but <laughs> that the author of Hebrews, because it doesn't say who wrote Hebrews, okay, in case you just, in case you're new, there's no, uh, Hebrews doesn't begin by saying Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus, to the Hebrews. It doesn't say that. Um, but I have my suspicions, but we don't know. But anyway, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, we have the same phenomenon going on. It says, for Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. So you see that? The earthly holy place was just a copy. It was a copy of the true one. And where is the true one? Into heaven itself. You see that? The true one is heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God before us. Because remember, when the high priest, let's go back to earth, Okay into the tent, and the high priest goes through the veil into the holy place, what does that symbolize but the very presence of God? And there he would light the incense. And what was the incense for? He would wave the incense and he would create a cloud in the holy of holies. And that cloud would symbolize and it would engulf the ark of the covenant, which is the throne of God. And so what was the, what was the high priest doing? He was creating the heavenly throne room. And he was enacting the glory cloud of God in heaven. Remarkable imagery, right? But what Hebrews is all about is that as powerful as that earthly imagery was, we don't go back to the images that were on earth. We don't go back to the copies. We stay with the reality, which is Jesus, which is the gospel. That is what it's all about. And he says here 
that he goes into the real holy place, in the heaven itself. He says, now to appear, just like, the, just like the earthly priest, in the presence of God for us. He says, nor was it that he would offer himself often. See, the, the priest would do it over and over, year by year. And he says, with blood not his own. Verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. He would have had to do it from the very beginning. But he says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there's a continuity and a discontinuity. What's the, what's the continuity? Well, like the earthly tabernacle, we too have a high priest. What's the discontinuity? Unlike the earthly priest, our priest brings his own blood. He brings his own blood. He comes with better blood because he's the mediator of a better covenant, because he has a better priesthood. And you know what the book of Hebrews says regarding that, on and on and on and on. And I think what Hebrews is saying here is that those that minister on the earthly tabernacle have no right to partake of the sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because as long as they are ministering according to the earthly tabernacle, which now becomes kind of like a a symbol for the whole old covenant, they have no right to eat of the altar that we have. Now, He proves this in a number of ways, but in verse 11, he shows the principle, and this becomes kind of a a link between verse 10 and verse 12. He says, for, anytime you see for there, you need to know why for is there for, right? Why is he saying for? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. And so, just like in the Old Testament, the priests were not allowed on the Day of Atonement, and that's what he's referring to as the Day of Atonement. They were not allowed on the Day of Atonement. Think about that. This is the high, holy day of Israel. And on the Day of Atonement, they were not allowed to partake of the food of the sacrifice, but instead, they were ta- they were, after they burned it as a, as, a, as a sin offering, they were to take, after they sacrificed it, excuse me, they took it outside of the city and burned it. They consumed the whole thing. What was God saying there? Well, in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 30, God tells them that on this day they cannot eat of the sacrifices of, of that sacrifice. And in Leviticus 16, he gives detailed instructions about all of this, about the Day of Atonement, what that symbolizes. And he says here that just as the Old Testament priests didn't eat of that sacrifice, so too now those who do not belong to the true altar of God cannot eat of the sacrifice, cannot partake of the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, Jesus, also that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, He suffered outside the gate. So now He shows us that the ultimate fulfillment of that glorious old covenant ritual of the day of atonement was found and fulfilled in the person of Christ. He brings the goal to all of it. He says that he suffered outside of the gate. What is the gate? Well, the gate is the gate of the city. 
The gate is going beyond the, the, the boundaries of the covenant people of God. He was to be put out. And as a matter of fact, the gate was the place of, of rejection, going outside the gate just as Jesus was. And remember from J- uh, John's gospel, John makes it very clear that Jesus was, sent, was crucified in Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, fulfilling the imagery of the, of the Day of Atonement because He is the ultimate sacrifice. And so, therefore, Jesus not only gives us His grace to empower us, but He's also giving us the goal and the, and the whole goal behind why He's doing what He's doing. Notice what it says. He says, Jesus also, so that He might sanctify the people. He says, through His own blood, He suffered outside the gate. And then here's the call. So let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. This is just a remarkable passage of Scripture, what's being said here. In a sense, Jesus is giving us His eternal goal for us, and there's two aspects of this. Number one, Christ desires a holy people. Why? Because it says here that the purpose of Him doing this is to sanctify us to set us apart. You see, that's the whole reason why Jesus, when He saves us, He doesn't just immediately transport us into heaven. And I would say that what's being talked about here, that He might sanctify a people through His blood, I think is both a positional sanctification and a progressive sanctification. He doesn't just set us apart permanently as we make a break with sin, but He also progressively, ongoing, we are being sanctified. He does this by standing in solidarity with us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 just to show you this, but this is just another instance of how Jesus stands with His people. And the good news about this is that as we are called to endure, as we're called to go beyond the gate ourselves, to go outside of the camp, to bear His reproach, as it says, we do that with Him. It says, let us go out to Him to identify with Him. Because he identified with us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, It is fitting for him, that's God, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, that's us, to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Christ, through sufferings. It's just a book of Hebrews, right? It's like, man. We go from God to us to Christ, you know, and it just, it, 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 it moves like that because Hebrews is a theologically packed book. God perfected the author of our salvation, Jesus, through suffering. By identi- but when He did that, He identified with us. Notice verse 11. He says, for, for both He who sanctifies, that's God, and, and excuse me, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one, that's the Father. He says they're all from one Father. My translation says Father, but really the text only says one. So then you've got to kind of from one God, from one source, from one Father, and so the NASB translates this as Father. He says, "For, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are His brethren because in His suffering, He stands with us. 
Notice what he says in verse 12. I will proclaim, as he's quoting Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my, my trust in him. And behold, he says, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. The depths of this theology. The depths of what we're seeing here is literally goes into the annals of eternity where God gave the Son a certain amount of children, a certain amount of brethren that He would redeem. It's remarkable. This is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. When the Father gives a certain amount of people to the Son, here in verse 13, it's I and the children whom God has given me. Remarkable. And you know what's even more remarkable? Verse 12 When he quotes Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing. Well, when did Jesus sing this psalm, Psalm 22? Do you know? On earth, when did Jesus sing Psalm 22? Where he's quoting from here. He sang it on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, folks, what Jesus was doing as He hung on the cross is He knew that as the Messiah, He had to fulfill the prophecy that was made of Him that He would sing in the midst of the congregation fulfilling Psalm 22. And from the cross on His dying breath, He sings Psalm 22. And even the more remarkable thing is that it was sung in reality. In reality, he was actually crying out to God, but in crying out to God, simultaneously, he is fulfilling biblical prophecy. And and simultaneously, in fulfilling biblical prophecy, he is standing in solidarity with his people as our high priest. It's It's just incredible. He did this all for us. He stood with us when he suffered. But staggeringly, Remarkably, Hebrews is now telling us the reverse. Let us go out to Him. Let us bear His reproach. Isn't that remarkable? I want you to turn with me to a few passages of Scripture because what Hebrews is merely saying is exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels when He said things like this. Whoever does not carry his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. What's he saying? Unless you're, wor- unless you're willing to bear Christ's reproach. Think of these Jewish Christians that are suffering persecution by some group of false teachers who are berating them and telling them, you must go back to the old covenant ways. You need to, you need to bring those elements back into your worship. If not, they're going to be ostracized and even persecuted. And in fact, they were. And what Christ is saying is, no, bear the reproach. Suffer with me. Don't go back. Don't compromise. This theology is everywhere. It's all all over the New Testament. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, I think probably the Apostle Paul exhibited this better than anyone. Evidence that God desires a holy people. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh 
I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, watch this, in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Maybe more explicitly, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, even more explicitly, Paul says this. He says in verse 10, that I may know Him. Forget legalism. If you want to be right with God, this is the cry of your heart, that you would know Him and the power of His resurrection, watch this, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Isn't that remarkable? Being conformed to His death. Incredible. Now, I I have verse after verse after verse after verse, but let me just show you that in the, in the early church. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. But the Bible is just full of this language of suffering with Christ. Not just suffering for Christ, but actually suffering with Him because we are part of His body. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in the early church, this whole theology of suffering with Christ was codified in a confession. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10. He says, for, just for context's sake, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. Now here's the, here's the confessional statement. This is a trustworthy statement. In other words, this statement was circulating around the early church, and Paul's going to quote it here. For if we died with Him... We also will live with Him. If we endure, he will, we will also reign with Him. See that? If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. What's He saying? He's saying the same thing that He said in Romans chapter 8 when He says, If we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. Now stay with me. We've got one more point. It's not just that God wants a holy people who are going to suffer with Christ and bear His reproach, but He also wants a holy people in a holy realm, which is the city of the living God. Look at verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. What's the principle? Here's the principle, and oh, let this encourage you. When you are discouraged as a Christian, and you're going through trials as a Christian, and you are being tempted to be disobedient in the midst of your trials, don't trials have the funny way of doing that? That when you are under trial, your gut, your flesh reaction is to disobey? (laughs) To throw your hands up? I had a woman tell me once, This is what happens every time I obey the Word. She was so frustrated because in her eyes, here I am just trying to live the Christian life, and every time I try to be zealous for good things, bad things happen to me. And my answer to that was, well, welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the Christian faith. I mean, this is the nature of the Christian life is you know, as Jesus promised us, we will suffer persecution, and everyone who seeks to be godly, you will suffer persecution. But the glorious promise is this, is that by enduring, by suffering, and by enduring all of these things with Christ, guess what you're saying? 
By that endurance, you are saying that you are seeking. Yeah, so it's almost like suffering is seeking. And the reason why is because we don't belong here. As he just said, we do not have a lasting city here in this world. Haven't you ever been tempted to go back home? Lift up your hands. Hasn't it ever gone bad for you? Haven't you ever moved somewhere and thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back? I've thought that. For years I've thought that. What if I just went back to Southern California where I was at? Maybe it would be easier there. (laughs) But you know the problem with that? I've been back to Southern California, and it doesn't feel like home anymore. People changed. The city's changed. Lord knows the politics have changed. Economy has changed. Traffic has changed for the worse. Friends have changed. It's not the same. You know what the reality is, is I love Texas very much. (laughs) I love the Lone Star State, but it's not home. And nowhere you go, brothers and sisters, will be home. Because if you are living for Christ and suffering with Christ, you will always be a stranger and an exile here in this world. We are, we are conditioned not to feel at home here. God has made it so that we don't get comfortable here. God is making it so that we don't identify with everything here. God is making it so that our hope and our aspirations and all of our dreams and all of our goals are not found in this world, in career, in family, in houses, in possessions, in in politics, in a country, in a nation, in a a patriotic spirit. This is not our home. And you know who knows, you know who knew that, who learned that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and I'll show you. Reality is I've already showed you, so I'm going to remind you of just a stellar example of what it means to suffer as evidence that you are longing for your real home. And that is Moses. Hebrews 11, 24. He says, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure. That's what these Christians are being taught to do right now. Endure ill treatment with the people of God. He could have easily said, and bear the reproach of Christ. Why? Well, rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ. There it is, same word. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for the reward. And that's exactly what is being said here. We do not have a lasting city here. We'll never be at home here. Nothing lasts here. You ever notice that? Everything fails. Everything falters. Oh, my wife is so faithful at pointing this out to me. Anytime we're in the house and something in the house breaks or, you know, a piece of clothing wears out or something like that, Trish is so faithful to remind me, yep, everything here breaks down. Moth, thief, rust, you know, it's all going to say, store your treasures, sweetheart. I'm like, yep, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. But she's right. 
Nothing lasts in this world. And therefore, just like Moses, we had better be seeking satisfaction somewhere else. And of course, that satisfaction is found solely in Christ. Let me end by quoting you a, a hymn that I've been singing lately. Just so encapsulates everything that we're studying here. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. This is what it says. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. You can go to anything that this world has to offer. You can go to the heights of any earthly pleasure you can think of. And you know what? You will turn unfilled, meaning dissatisfied. What did, what did the psalmist say? I have seen the perfection of all things, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Right? This earth and this earth's treasures cannot compare with the glory that God has prepared for us. Father, I know that the challenge for us in this present evil age is to be satisfied with You instead of with lesser things. To live for God and for Your glory and for Christ and communion with Christ. To seek the satisfaction that He gives, the life that He gives, instead of seeking to be satisfied by broken cisterns that don't hold any water. And so, oh God, would you, by your grace and by your mercy, help us, number one, not to be deceived by anything other than the all-satisfying power of your grace. Number two, being willing, therefore, to bear the reproach of Christ, to suffer with Him. And number three, to long for heaven, to long for the city of of the living God, the city that you prepared and that you built for us, knowing that in this life, in this world, we have no lasting city. We have no lasting home. Help us, Lord. Give us pilgrim perspectives for the good of our own soul. In Jesus' name, amen.